you, you can't be you can't you can't prepare for an interview like that. The state was so embarrassed by what they did the, to the Duwalabis that they wouldn't prosecute anybody for this crime unless they had a hundred percent guarantee of conviction. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. As if the Dwallaby family had not faced enough hardship, they were going to be hit with another shocking revelation just the following year. In early January of 1993, the alibi of 31-year-old Timothy Guess who is the brother of Jacqueline's birth father, Jimmy Guess, was called into question. There had been a flurry of interest in the case after the popular NBC TV show, Unsolved Mysteries, aired a segment on the case. After the episode aired, a number of people called the hotline provided at the end of the episode, with information that they thought could be useful in the case. Some people who rang pointed towards Timothy Guess as a potential suspect in Jacqueline's murder. Timothy, who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, had originally told investigators that he was working in the Park Avenue restaurant, located on the corner of 157th Street and Park Avenue, in Harvey, from 9pm to 6am on the night that Jacqueline vanished. The time, this alibi was corroborated by three other restaurant employees. However, the caller said otherwise. The callers were regular customers at Park Avenue, who both claimed that Timothy was not at work that night, and that he had asked his colleagues to concoct an alibi for him. The two callers directed Rob Warden and David Protes in the direction of three other customers who were at the restaurant that night confirmed that Timothy was not in the restaurant the night Jacqueline vanished. During the original investigation, three employees of the restaurant had confirmed that Timothy was working that night, but since then, two of these employees had recanted their statements and now claimed that Timothy wasn't working. See, there's another thing right there, that a competent police investigation, you do not walk into a restaurant and interview three witnesses simultaneously. You separate them and and, and review them uh, independently. They're all sitting there agreeing with each other. But then, uh, when we ultimately got Tim Gesser's uh, girlfriend, she said, "Uh, no, Timmy was not there, and that she just went along with it because that's what the owner of the restaurant, uh, the guy named Gary something, had said. Uh, and she was sitting right there, a witness, and went along with it. because. And, and these were state's attorney's investigators, not police, and just, you know, more incompetence. It's like, and I reiterate, I have never seen a competent uh, police investigation. Warden and protests were able to obtain statements from two other customers at the restaurant, who alleged that Timothy once claimed he had killed before and that he could kill again. Paul Hogan also spoke to five customers at the restaurant, who were adamant that Timothy was not at the restaurant that night. Timothy's mother, Jackie Guess, provided a link between Timothy and the Islander apartment complex where Jacqueline's body was found. 
She had testified during the trial that Timothy frequently dropped. Margaret Murphy, who was a restaurant employee, offered these apartments and picked her up to take her to work. Jackie had said that she warned Timothy not to step foot near the apartments after Jacqueline's body had been found. Margaret lived just 100 yards from where Jacqueline's body was found. In fact, it would be discovered that Timothy wasn't actually a proper employee at the restaurant. He didn't have a paying job. He would frequently go to the restaurant and stay there all night, sometimes chatting to the waitresses and sometimes helping out with busboy duties. On occasion, the owner would pay Timothy for helping out, and he got free food and free coffee, but it wasn't a job, per se. Due to Timothy's psychiatric issues, he had never had a full-time job. When Warden and Protest interviewed Timothy after investigating the tips into his alibi, Timothy first of all stood by his original story and contended that he had been working in the restaurant that night. However, after a while, Timothy began to speak to Warden and Protest in what he called the voice of a spirit visiting him. He claimed that when the spirit visited him, his eyes turned from green to blue and his voice got huskier. According to protests, however, they noticed no change in him when the spirit allegedly took over. The interview with Tim Guess was the craziest interview I've done in my career. I've never done an interview like that. We wanted to interview Tim for the book, you know, not really knowing whether or not he was involved in the crime, though suspicious of him. Um, because uh, one reason we cooperated with Unsolved Mysteries was they post a toll-free number and a couple people called Unsolved Mysteries to report that Tim uh, had left the Park Day Avenue restaurant that night and hadn't been seen a good part of the time, uh, around the time that Jacqueline was discovered missing. Um, so we were suspicious of him, but we had no idea going into the actual interview with him what was going to happen. But we had a mutual friend uh, set up the interview and we went to a, um, a restaurant chain in the south suburbs and um, uh, I sat across from Tim and Rob Warden sat next to me and uh, he was talking about his you know knowledge of the Dewalabies uh, to the family because he was after all Jacqueline's biological uncle he talked to him you know a bit about uh, David and Cynthia uh, his own brother, who was the initial suspect in the case, Jim Guess, who was in prison at the time, was a pretty good, pretty good alibi. Uh, and about, I guess it was maybe 45 minutes into the interview, where, where we weren't getting anything of significance, he suddenly looked across the table and said to me, um, what color are my eyes? And I said, why are you asking? And he said, because... If my eyes are green, I, I am just Tim Guess. But if my eyes turn blue, uh, you know, then you'll know that I am in the presence of a spirit who can tell you everything that you want to know about the Dewalaby case. And I looked at him, and his eyes were actually hazel. <laughs> but I said, but I said, well, your eyes look blue to me, Tim. And. And he suddenly developed this kind of mysterious look on his face and began talking in a husky voice. 
and said the spirit can tell you everything you want to know about the crime and and the spirit was in Jacqueline's room that night and so we asked him to describe the room and the Rob Borden sitting next to me turned on a tape recorder that captured all of this and he described things about Jacqueline's room that were not in the media. Um, Tim had never been in Jacqueline's room. Uh, Things like a a bracelet that was on her nightstand. Little details about stuffed animals, about the light in her closet being on and the light in her room being off. That was just really remarkable unless he'd been there. But I wasn't about to judge him at this point. I wanted to get information. I was looking for facts here. Uh, And so I said, tell me more. And he then proceeded to talk about how uh, the spirit lifted Jacqueline up and from her bed and walked out of the house, slipping at one point to say, I, using the personal pronoun, walked past Davy's room, uh, which was chilling to hear because he was obviously talking about himself carrying Jacqueline. Um, and uh, ultimately uh, her death and being dumped by the, the dumpster in Blue Island. Um, so we had it all on audio recording, and there was just no question when we left this interview that uh, Tim Guest was responsible for the crime. The only trouble with the interview, a couple of times, Tim and I locked eyes, and, and um, if I looked away even for a second... Uh, he would say, my eyes blue or green. Once I made a mistake and I said green, and he said, then the spirit is gone. I said, oh, no. I said, I'm sorry, I meant, I meant blue. The other, the other big problem with the interview is, is that we were sitting there over, oh, God, it was several hours, drinking coffee, and I was really wired, and I had to go to the bathroom, <laughs> and I couldn't get up because he, you know, he kept revealing these little-known or unknown details about the crime that he or the spirit somehow knew. Um, so we came away with that, and then we told the Wallabies, we played the audio tape for them. Uh, Paul Hogan took the tape and brilliantly matched it, matched the evidence in Tim's voice on the tape with the crime scene evidence from actual police reports that showed that they were an identical match and that only the killer would have known uh, what um, what Tim revealed. Um, so we felt and feel to this day that that even if Tim Guest was not brought to justice because the authorities were, were loath to admit that they'd made that big of a mistake having publicly staked their reputations on it, um, we, we felt comfortable uh, that justice was done and that um, that the crime had been solved and that the actual killer's identity was known to Dave and Cindy and to the neighbors um, and to Chicagoans, too, who watched Hogan's stories. Um, and it wasn't, you know, the ideal ending, but it was better than this unknown killer is lurking out there and doing these things. There have been a couple of times in my career where people have confessed crimes to me uh, three altogether. I um, never had one uh, in the voice of a psychotic killer uh, can confess to um, to doing something like he did. You, you you can't you can't you can't prepare for an interview like that. I mean, the the main thing I, I suppose you learn and um, try to teach this to my students. 
was that, um, you know, when you're a journalist doing an interview, uh, you just don't judge, you listen, and you prompt people to move things along. Uh, and if you're empathic and, you know, will not uh, harshly say something that I was tempted to say, which is, how could you hurt this little girl? Keep your mouth shut. They'll keep talking. And pretty much he said enough to uh, hang himself. During a taped interview, Timothy confessed that he often heard voices in his head and suffered from blackouts. He described how the so-called spirit would often guide him and claimed that the spirit had given him the ability to describe the layout of the Dwallaby home. Timothy had never been to the Dwallaby home, yet was able to describe the exact layout and describe how to get into Jacqueline's bedroom. Timothy even described the blanket that was found with Jacqueline's body and somehow knew that the light in Jacqueline's closet was turned on but her bedroom light was turned off on the night she vanished. He additionally knew details of the stuffed animals inside Jacqueline's bedroom and the jewellery on her nightstand. Even more chilling, Timothy described how when Jacqueline died, one of her hands was clenched, while the other was open, and he described how she was placed in the spot where her body was discovered, with her head positioned in a northeast angle. These tidbits of information had never been made public. Here is what Rob Warden said about the interview with Timothy Guess. It was it was really incredible. I mean, we were, it was in this restaurant. He would go into this thing. He said that you know when his eyes were green, the spirit was with him, and when they were blue, the spirit wasn't with him. And he'd ask, uh, you know, what color my eyes? That one ghost got the color wrong and had had to backtrack. And, and um, you know, so he he said that he knew all this stuff because he had been told. Um, he knew this because there's a spirit with whom he was in communication and who confided all of this information that he had no, about the murder that he had no other way of knowing. And then, of course, the girlfriend lived in the Islander apartments where the body was found. So he was familiar with the area where the body was found. Uh, he had described the interior of the house that he had never been in other than when he went into a doctor. And I just think there's no, there was no question but at this point, the police and prosecutors were out to defend what they'd done, and there was no, no chance they were going to do an, a legitimate investigation of, of Timothy Yes in this case. After it was revealed that Timothy was being investigated, he checked himself into the psychiatric ward at Ingalis Memorial Hospital. In the aftermath of the update, there were a lot of people who defended Timothy. Sheila, who worked as a waitress in Park Avenue Restaurant, described Timothy as a gentle man who could never harm anybody, let alone a child. She described how she and Timothy frequently went out for a drink together and said that on numerous occasions she was drunk around Timothy, but he never once attempted to take advantage of her. However, she did acknowledge that Timothy often spoke of the so-called spirit that overtook his body on occasion, but said that she never thought too much of it. His aunt, Helen Gay, said, Now they're going to come back to my nephew, who has a mental problem, which everybody knows about, that he wouldn't hurt anybody, and they're going to try and pin this on him. When the inconsistencies of Timothy's alibi came to the surface, Cook County State Attorney Jack O'Malley 
said that based on the available evidence, there is no current basis for charges against anybody. Cynthia and David subsequently sent a letter to Cook County Judge Thomas Fitzgerald, who was a presiding judge of the criminal division, asking him to appoint a special prosecutor on the case. In the letter, they said that State Attorney O'Malley had not diligently investigated the new leads, and they objected to a remark that he had recently made, in which he said that there was little chance that anybody would be charged with Jacqueline's murder. Here's what Joe Cosman said about Timothy Guess. You know, Timothy was brought up later on, I think that was by Paul Hogan in Channel 5, who did a great big, this is the guy who could, Timothy Guess worked at Park Restaurant in Harvey, which is a couple towns over. Uh, Timothy Guess was a little on the slow side, and he was interviewed, and we found nothing. He would It would have been very easy to trick Timothy into making something that sounded like a admission. So I think some of the things Paul Hogan used that's what happened. But uh, yeah, he was he was just, uh, he was a little on the slow side, let's say. You know, and the tricks the media could use to get people to say things are different than what we could use. Cynthia and David wrote that they wanted a special prosecutor who would thoroughly investigate the new information regarding Timothy. In a statement, the couple said, We do not know whether Mr. Guess murdered our daughter, and because of our own experience with the criminal justice system, we are not about to point the finger at him or anyone else. Cynthia and David also accused State Attorney O'Malley of not investigating Timothy, or questioning those who said his alibi was false. They ended their letter with, We believe the State Attorney's office has a legal and moral obligation to try and bring our daughter's killer to justice. Unfortunately, for the reasons stated above, we no longer have confidence in Mr. O'Malley's commitment to conduct a thorough investigation. State law would allow the appointment of a special prosecutor. However, State Attorney O'Malley responded to their letter and said that a special prosecutor was unwarranted. Once again, the Dwallabies were denied adequate investigation into their daughter's murder. Bob Byman told us his theory on whether Timothy Guess was responsible or not. See, my own personal opinion, and of course my own personal opinion is worth almost nothing, is that the real perpetrator was not Hernandez, but rather was Tim Guess. And I base that basically on what Guess, and I wasn't there, supposedly told protests in Hogan about the inside of Jacqueline's room. Guess was never in that room, at least not with permission. If if he had known what that room looked like and could describe details of it, then it means he was there sometime without permission. And our theory is that he was just trying to do his mother a favor by getting her a visit with her granddaughter. She lamented the fact that she didn't get to see Jacqueline enough. And so I think he just tried to snatch her for a visit. I don't think he was trying to hurt her. I don't think he wanted to kill her. I think things got out of hand. But that's my working theory, and I think that's what the family has accepted to give themselves 
some closure, but we're never going to be able to prosecute him on it, in part because the state was so embarrassed by what they did to the Duwalabis that they wouldn't prosecute anybody for this crime unless they had a 100% guarantee of conviction. Jacqueline's biological father, Jimmy Guess, spoke to Wharton in protest in 1993. Jimmy had believed Cynthia and David were innocent. He had said that he knew that Cynthia would never hurt Jacqueline. He told Warden in protest that he planned to ask his brother if he was involved. But Timothy was in a psychiatric unit, and they had just lost their mother, so it was not the right time. Jimmy said that he loved Cynthia and Jacqueline, although he had never been a positive or consistent presence in their lives. On the fifth anniversary of Jacqueline's death, Channel 7 the same channel who had broadcast the leaked and falsified reports of abuse on Davy, wanted to do a piece on Jacqueline. They contacted Jimmy Guess, who never knew the little girl. By this time, for whatever reason, Jimmy had changed his mind and said that he believed the jury had convicted the right person. He has been quoted in the media since saying similar things. Timothy has always denied any involvement in Jacqueline's murder, and a lot of people close to him believe that his mental health issues were taken advantage of, and he was used as a scapegoat of sorts. Timothy passed away from bladder cancer in December of 2002. In his obituary, he is referred to as the caring uncle of the late Jacqueline. As protest later said, I felt it was solved but I never thought anyone would be charged with the crime. It would be too embarrassing for the state to admit they wrongfully prosecuted Cynthia and David. Many people felt the same way. I, I'm uh, personally, I'm absolutely convinced that Timothy Gass abducted Jacqueline uh, because of, um, you know, he, he had never been in the house, uh, supposedly, and yet he was able to describe the interior I remember talking to them that they, there was something wrong with him and that he um, was connected to the family. And we were talking about um, the fact that in that meeting that that there was something like not right about him. And then we found out he was mentally unstable. Uh, he had been questioned by the police. They went, they told us they were under wire. And they said, is there anything else you get about this person? And as I said it, I start talking about uh, these movements in his stomach with the, I kept feeling like several spasms in a circle. And at one point they said that they were kind of amazed by that. And it's it's really like twitches or muscle spasms that he gets. So they said, yeah, absolutely, Lynn, because there was a point where he pulled his shirt up and said, uh, you know, I'm not really human. <laughs> And that I had seven stomachs, and 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 he's showing him that they he's got these twitches and spasms. So what caused that I don't know, except it was just so accurate. He had a thing that when he was sitting there, when he started, that his eyes were, because I I think it was something with his eye color that I picked up that they were turning color, and I didn't understand it fully. And they said, "No, I will tell you." And then they told me later that it was about his eyes turning from blue to green and that supposedly the spirit comes in him and takes over him and when the spirit's in him his eyes turn from say blue to green or green to blue 
And so he asked, are my eyes different yet? And of course they said yes. And he goes, oh good, because he's in me. And then he went on to tell them how she had to be taken from the Duwalabis, that she had to be taken away. And they were upset because the family was moving out of state. And with them moving out of state, the grandmother was very upset because she was very close to Jacqueline and Jacqueline played with cousins other children and Tim was upset because his mother was so upset and he was upset that if they moved out of state they wouldn't get to be with Jacqueline and she was a guest so she had to be taken from the Dualabies he said she's in heaven with God where she belongs and then he started laughing telling them that he could get away with murder because he talked to his one of his doctors and because he was committed in and out of institutions from just chemical imbalance plus all the drugs and crap he used to do, that he could get away with murder and never be found guilty. And he laughed about it. There was a wreath that showed up at graveside, and the wreath was plain. There was nothing on it, like no banner to, you know, granddaughter or anything or rest in peace. But the thing that was odd about it, it had... I, I know there was something with quarters involved on this wreath. And it turned out that he used to gamble at this restaurant where the woman that was his alibi and later on on her deathbed said no, that he wasn't with me. There was a machine out there where you could gamble. This particular machine took quarters. This person I talked about that was involved between him, this man, and the waitress borrowed him they, uh, Tim gets a lot of quarters to play this all the time. He owed him a lot of money that was building up. And um, I feel that he was somehow involved in wanting to be with with the child. And that if, if this happened, he would eradicate the loan of money. Because he was pressing, I want my money, I want my money. The murder of Jacqueline Dwallaby is a cautionary tale for police, prosecutors, lawyers and judges, and is a chilling reminder that the presumption of innocence is the foundation of the justice system. The case also truly highlighted an occupational peril of competitive media coverage, that far too often the media relies too heavily on law enforcement sources. From the beginning, Cynthia and David were ordered by their attorneys to plead the fifth, to stay silent. Therefore, early on in the case, the media relied exclusively on what law enforcement said. As Paul Hogan said, I suspected they were guilty, especially since the cops were saying incriminating things like the basement window being broken from the inside. Paul Hogan said that it was during the murder trial that he realised that he and other reporters and journalists had been terribly misled by police. The media had been used by law enforcement to fuel suspicion and they had leaked information such as the belief that the window had been broken from the inside, as if it were fact. It wouldn't be until the trial that many of these leaks were shown to be wholly inaccurate. Here's what David Protest said about Paul Hogan. Well, he, he told 
the, the Wallabies story for the first time. He, he, he found, he uncovered the truth and told it. And, and then even more than that, when it came to Tim Guess surfacing as an alternative suspect, he told that truth too, which brought a lot of comfort to people, um, especially in the neighborhood, to know that, uh, that the actual killer's identity was known, even if he wasn't ultimately arrested. Tragically, on the 28th of January 1993, Paul Hogan died of a heart attack at just 48 years old. He had been at home with his wife, Chris, when he complained of indigestion and discomfort. Chris rushed Paul to Northwestern Memorial Hospital and he was pronounced dead at 1.14am. Paul was truly instrumental in having the public consider the likelihood that David was wrongfully convicted. Paul Hogan was everything that a good journalist should be. He was compassionate, hardworking and always asked the hard questions. He set an extremely high standard for journalism. Over his career, he earned nine Chicago Emmy Awards and two Peter Lizago Awards. He exposed government fraud and corruptions as well as crusaded for those who he believed were wrongfully accused or convicted of crimes. In addition to working on David's appeal, he helped exonerate Sandra Fabiano. As protests said, he was an extraordinary journalist and compassionate person who wouldn't stop until the truth came out. That's the highest role a reporter can play, to right a wrong or correct an injustice. In fact, over his career, Hogan had even given impromptu lectures to his colleagues about the importance of journalist ethics and integrity. David Protest and Rob Warden had picked up where John Waters left off. When the private investigator who had been so instrumental in dismantling the prosecution's apparent case had died shortly after David Dewallaby was convicted, he never got to see him vindicated. Protests and his students at Medill spent a long time searching for similar cases to try and unmask Jacqueline's killer. David Protest spoke to us about juries and wrongful convictions. The Dewalaby case was was the I had done wrongful conviction stories before, but the Dewalaby case was my first major um, expose of miscarriage of justice. And since then, I've done a couple of dozen more cases, uh, 17 in which people were ultimately exonerated. And I found that there's a common denominator. It's that the jury uh, reaches premature conclusions. They're swayed by emotion rather than evidence. Um, in several cases, they, they want to get out of there. Uh, you know, this was a three-day deliberation. I mean, some deliberations go on longer. And basically, people who conclude that uh, the defendant is probably innocent um, give way because they, they don't want to spend the rest of their lives waiting, you know, uh, for a decision, and they, they, they cave. David Protest founded the Medill Innocence Project and was the president of the Chicago Innocence Project and led to over a dozen exonerations for wrongfully convicted inmates, including many on death row. Here's what he had to say about it. To me, the most important part of it has been the, the, the teaching, and the the greatest joy is 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 continuing to hear from 
my students who I became very close to all those years and we were out, we were out in the field. We were, we were knocking on doors of crack houses to get information together and stayed in touch. And, and you know, one of the sweetest was just a, uh, about a week ago, um, uh, one of my one of my students um, wrote me to uh, say that uh, he had just filed uh, a brief in a in a death penalty case in Texas involving a a man who um, was 18 when he committed a murder, and the the brief the amicus brief was designed to say you can't kill somebody who's 18 even if they did commit a murder um, because the human brain is not shaped um, well enough at that point to to fully know right from wrong. And here, this 18-year-old who, who my former student was defending, here my 18, this 18-year-old had gone on to be a model of prisons. I saved the prisoners, prisoner guard, a prison guard's life in, in a riot that broke out. Um, a model prisoner in Texas still was intent on killing him. And sad to say, he became the first man to die in, in Texas after the, there was a um, hiatus in the death penalty because of the chemicals that were being used. So I had to tell my student that, that he found the truth, that he, that he fought for the truth, and that he did the best he could to save a life. And it's the effort that counts, you know. And that if you want to keep on doing righteous work, uh, that will honor the man who was put to death. Each one of these is bread on the water, you know, educating people, um, righting wrongs, correcting injustices. Uh, each one is a step in that direction. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm sad to, to report that the last contact I had with, with Jared Hoffman, my student, was to try to reassure him that he did everything he could and shouldn't feel as bad as he was about the execution. But then I come away from it thinking, you know what? If I've helped to inspire a generation of young people to go out there and do this kind of work in whatever field they do it in, then that's what's been worth it, more than the 17 people who've been freed. It's the larger lessons that students in society learn. Each one of these cases educates people uh, about how the justice system fails um, so that maybe someday they will be on a jury and they'll say, I remember the Diwalabi case and the mistake that they made. I'm going to consider reasonable doubt here before I convict. I'm like to, I'd like to think that, although he won't admit it, uh, if you guys have any kids, you'll know why, um, that that my son Ben, the New York Times reporter, who is an investigative reporter who has exposed some of the worst abuses by the Trump administration for the New York Times, um, is doing this work because he uh, has, um, you know, a, a dad who, you know, you know, Ben was with me when David DeWalby was freed. He was with me at the steps of the prison when David walked into Cynthia's arms. And so it was a real father-son bonding experience. It wasn't just me watching a family being reunited. It was my son. And then later on, 
uh, I read in his essay to go to journalism school as a graduate student, um, he, he wrote what the experience was like and why he wanted to be a journalist, having seen the Dwalby family reunited. Um, so I like to think within, within my own family, um, you know, that this sort of work uh, inspires them. Not not me so much, it's the work, it's the, it's the people who you get to meet, inspires them to um, do good in the world. And I'm proud of him and I'm proud of my oldest son, uh, Dan, who's a um, producer at PBS. Um, so, you know, again, it's... Uh, each one of each one of these is um, a character builder for people. David Protest is an incredible journalist and advocate for justice. He remained close to the Dewallabies for a long time after David's release, but they were bound by tragedy, and sometimes it's too hard to hold on to the reminders of such difficult times, even if it means letting go of friendships. I don't think. Uh, it, it would be possible for them to uh, ever uh, recover. But I did, I did learn a, a personal lesson from that, uh, which was that I became so close to, to the family. I helped them buy their new home after David was freed. We used to um, babysit Davy. Um, my own son, Ben, who's now a New York Times reporter, and Davey were the same age, and they used to hang out together. In fact, um, Davey came to Ben's eighth birthday party. It was, um, it was a really, um, my wife was a lawyer and, and was responsible for getting the, the Wallabies, um, their appellate lawyer, Bob Iman, uh, because she had mediated cases with him. So this became a real um, family uh, experience. It wasn't just an investigative story to me. It became very personal, um, which made it very hard uh, after four or five years after David was freed that I sort of began to lose track of them. Um, we used to um, get together for birthdays uh, every fourth. You know, we would go down to the, the, the Wildbees' new home and and. Um, the kids grew up together, and it was really wonderful. And then just time started to pass, and, and I saw and talked to uh, them less and less. And um, at one point, I called up Cindy, and I said, hey, you know, it's been about four or five years. I miss you guys. And she says, I, you know, I miss you too, but understand something. You were our angel at a time in our lives that was pure hell. But your presence during that time reminded us of the pure help we were going through. And we just had to put everything aside, including the good things in our lives, and, and, and move on if we were going to survive. So they're haunted by, by this to, to this day, I'm sure. But they had enough of strength, uh, inner resources, to realize they had a couple of other kids to take care of. Uh, Dave and then Carly was born. And... Um, you know, they had to have a, a, a new life. They changed their name um, because the Wallaby was so recognizable in Chicago. Um, David went back to work. Cindy got a job and went back to work. And, and you know, it's just amazing to see, bottom line for me, it is amazing to see how resilient people are. Rob Warden has staunchly remained an advocate for those who have been wrongfully convicted 
and is a zealous critic of the death penalty. In 1999, he co-founded the Centre for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University with Professor Lawrence C. Marshall. The centre has been instrumental in exonerating 31 innocent people and Warden blazed a trail of revolutionary reforms. Over his pioneering career, he has won over 50 journalism awards, including two Civil Liberties Union James Maguire Awards and five Peter Lizagor Awards from the Society of Professional Journalists. He has also altered seven books. In 2003, he was inducted into the Chicago Journalism Hall of Fame. In 2010, Warden conducted a study with the Better Government Association, which showed that wrongful convictions of 85 men and women for violent crimes, including murder in Illinois between 1989 and 2010, had cost taxpayers an extortionate $214 million and locked away innocent people for more than 900 years while the real perpetrators of those crimes went on to commit almost 100 felonies. The study also found that the majority of those wrongful convictions had been caused by alleged government misconduct or error by police, prosecutors and forensic experts, or eyewitness misidentification. The study was the first since DNA profiling which looked at the cumulative impact of police, prosecutorial and forensic failure in Illinois and the findings were an embarrassment as well as an eye-opener to many who support the death penalty. In fact, Warden has been pivotal to the change in the national discourse about wrongful convictions and the death penalty as a whole. His work was instrumental in influencing the moratorium on Illinois executions in 2000, before the state abolished the death penalty in 2011. Here's what Rob Warden had to say. It's just overwhelmingly clear uh, that David uh, Durabi and Cynthia Durabi were innocent of this crime. They were the victims of overzealous uh, police and prosecution, and they never should have been, uh, obviously never should have been charged in the first place. David languished behind bars unjustly for more than a year and a half, and the case left them destitute uh, and with basically no... Uh, no recourse. And there's, the, the trouble is there's really not much of a constituency for the wrongfully convicted. Or for the people who are victims of police until, you know, very recently, just in the last couple of months, we've seen uh, this uh, uh, rather incredible uh, display of public demonstrations over, over the death of, uh, of an African-American in Minneapolis at the hands of the police. But there are hundreds of cases like this that have had, uh, that have occurred and that nothing has happened following them. This one conceivably could be different, uh, let us hope. You know, we put a great deal of, of, of stock in the accuracy. We have a great deal of faith in the criminal justice system. But that faith is undeserved. Um, as um, we have shown over the years, uh, there's a, a, an inordinate number of wrongful convictions. Uh, juries often get it wrong. We have, in study after study, uh, there, there have been literally thousands of cases in which juries um, uh, uh, rendered guilty verdicts, but incontrovertible evidence of innocence came to, came to light later. And uh, those are documented uh, very well on the National Registry of Exonerations, which I help uh, start here at the University of California, Irvine now.
uh, one of the problems is that the prosecutors, no matter how egregious their misconduct, and the and that was certainly egregious under Richard M. Daley in Chicago and others nationally, uh, can't really be sued uh, under for uh, civilly uh, for their malfeasance in these cases because there's a doctrine of um, of, of sovereign immunity that that we. Um, borrowed from the common law that's basically you can only sue the king if the king allows you to sue him and there is no law that allows some um, uh, prosecutors to be sued um, uh, in the United States although uh, there is a civil rights act uh, enacted after the civil war that allows um, uh, police officers to be sued so you've seen in, in some cases police officers have the uh, have wound up with tremendous liability, but prosecutors uh, who are equally, if not more, to blame for these, uh, for many of these wrongful convictions, have just um, escaped unscathed. And of course, this is not the only case in which they did things like this. <laughs> I mean, Bailey was just, uh, you know, he covered up police torture. We had, you know, a whole scandal in Chicago of a group of um, white police officers torturing African-American murder suspects, uh, leading to, to a whole bunch of wrongful convictions and more than 100 um, uh, confessions uh, obtained under torture. Uh, Daly covered that up uh, when he was state's attorney and later as mayor. Uh, so that's, um, uh, you know, it's a disgrace. And this whole thing, it, it all accrues, um, you know, to the disgrace of uh, the Cook County criminal justice system David uh, has has been able to uh, work, support his family. They had another child. Uh, they have, uh, you know, they have done reasonably well. And I attribute that to the fact that they had pretty good, strong support. They had family and friends who supported them throughout this uh, ordeal. And David spent a relatively short uh, uh, amount of time uh, in in prison. When he came back out, his employer rehired him, and so uh, they were able to recover from this better than the vast majority of people who have been wrongfully convicted. Uh, that's good, at least. But nobody, nobody emerges from an experience like this whole. They're all damaged, some worse than others. Uh, you know, they, well, actually, you know, they came to my retirement from Northwestern a few years ago. And, you know, a movie was made about this. So two-part made for TV. We're interviewed at the end of that. And uh, based on the book David and I wrote. And you remember the, uh, the Ramsey case in Colorado Springs? Uh, the Duwalabies were outspoken in support of the Ramsey family at that time. Uh, but I think it's understandable at this point. They don't want to raise this again, so I'd be very surprised if they would be willing to talk. This case demonstrates the polarity in many different areas. The community, the law, and the media. While certain news outlets gave a platform to misinformation and false allegations of abuse, journalists like Hogan, Protest, and Warden sought out the truth. The conviction of David Wallaby and its subsequent reversal truly reflected the volatile nature of media coverage and highlighted how imperative it is for those reporting on crimes to remain ethical 
and gather information from both sides. Journalists have a duty to stick to facts, avoid sensationalism and report fairly. Covering this case has been a learning curve for us as well. We've made mistakes and learned lessons in the importance of integrity and ethical journalism. This was a real tragedy. Those bereaved by homicide are subjected to trauma again and again at different stages following a loss. Each milestone their loved one misses opens a wound that hasn't healed. When these wounds are torn apart by outside influences, such as the media and the public, it is our responsibility to make sure that what is being said is not sensationalised or one-sided. Gone in the Night by David Protest and Rob Warden is an example of great true crime writing. They presented both sides of the case, and along with the legal documents and speaking to those involved, it was a great resource for us. Here's what David Protest had to say about the book. We wrote this book in part to expose a wrongful conviction, but in part to uh, get people to stop and question their assumptions. Um, And the story is sort of like going to your eye doctor's office where you're looking through one lens and they suddenly flip the lens and everything (laughs) everything goes from clear to blurry and then back to clear again. We could have written a book that was... far less complicated and, and bogged down in detail, which is the main criticism of it. And I think it's fair criticism. That there's a lot of names and a lot of details and a lot of evidence. Uh, but I don't think we would have gotten people to, we wouldn't have given people the chance to make up their own minds based on the contrasting views of the evidence if we hadn't included everybody. We spent a lot of time uh, assembling all of the facts and, and organizing it. And um, then it was no easy task to, to write together. I mean, we literally wrote every word um, sitting at Rob's computer together, um, a, true, a true collaboration, uh, which we've done twice. Actually, our, our second book together is very different uh, treatment. The book on the Fort Heights 4 case, uh, Promise of Justice, um, very, very different kind of book, much more visual um, not told like a lot of true crime stories chronologically from beginning to end, like the Dwalaby story was was told, uh, told in with flashbacks and flash forwards, and uh, but we like doing we like doing both. Um, this is, this is why I don't have to tell you. I mean, I've I've obviously seen uh, some of your work uh, just in in googling you that uh, you know this. You get a, you, you really get a passion uh, for for true crime. Um, you want to tell it right. You want to tell it compelling. You want people to feel uh, for the story the same way that you feel uh, about it and researching it. So it's um, it's it's an important genre. And I'm I'm glad to, that it's being picked up in podcast form now because people aren't reading true crime books anymore. When it comes to the murder of a child, parents are very often the first suspect, and they should be fully investigated. However, when it comes to these types of cases, time truly is of the essence and other evidence should not be ignored or overlooked, in favour of the parents as a suspect. There were good people on both sides of this case, and while the prosecution and some members of the police acted on assumptions rather than evidence, Officers like Joseph Cosman tried to do what he thought was right. 
You know, the last thing I wanted to do was put the wrong people in jail for something as horrific as that. And a lot of the people I worked with were felt the same way. Uh, it's just you what's usable evidence and what's not usable evidence. You know, that's, that's what we had to go on. And that's what you have to use. And that's what we did. The, the jury's verdict was completely understandable as was the police's assumptions that they were guilty, as was, based on the evidence brought to them, the prosecutor's assumptions uh, that this was a case that had to be prosecuted and that they were guilty. Everyone, everyone's position in this case on both sides is understandable. Something terrible took place in that ranch-style home on 148th Street in Midlothian, Illinois on the night of the 9th of September, 1988. After Cynthia and David were released, the case seemed to come to a standstill, despite other plausible suspects being brought to light. David appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show, which aired on the 17th of June, 1993. In this televised segment, he griped about how police handled the case, stating, I accept that police, for the most part, are not able to admit that they're wrong. We called them for help, and they came and threw us in jail. They ruined our lives. Linda Petrine told us about her thoughts on the case. The chief was under the gun, come up with the murderer to put this at rest. And I think that all of this worked against the Dwalabies. To me, one of the things that showed that, and I did uh, bring that up, to the lawyer and stuff was that I went in and I told you my hand, my hands because I worked at the county on tax bills that were huge. So I had to be FBI because I had to process this and put a stamp that it was for, you know, a Cook County Tax Assessor's Office. I was fingerprinted and once you're fingerprinted with FBI, you're always on record. You're in their system and that's it. And the fact was that when I first went to the house and I asked if I could go to the point of entry, it, you know, where the person came in, there was this pile of glass on the floor with this large shard and on the window, um, the, the glass was still all shattered. And I said to both Cynthia and David, is it possible I would like to know if the police did everything here forensically? Was this all taken care of? And are you keeping this glass because I see it's here in a pile are they going to reconstruct the, the window you know where the pieces came out and they said no no they're done they did all the fingerprinting they told us that we could replace the window and just we asked them what to do with all this and they just throw it away and at that point this was not five weeks later when this one detective remembers he thought he saw undisturbed dust on the windowsill I said, so in other words, this has been dealt with. Could you check with the officer? And I think one of them did check, and they said, no, that it's, it's fine. I could do whatever I wanted. So I took both my hands, and completely all ten fingers were on the glass on either side of where the hole was. I placed my hands to see if I could get any imaging of the person that was breaking in what he looked like. And, and to get my connection. That's remember I said psychometry. So I placed my hands there and, and closed my eyes and I started getting imagery. 
and then I she had a couch down there like and I, I I saw this large shard on top of the pile and I said may I take that to hold which is absolutely so I picked it up and I held that trying to go further into what I was getting and then I I didn't want to I didn't want to break where I was at so I said to them if you don't mind I put the glass back down on on the pile I said is there any way I can go to her room so they took me upstairs and I'm thinking oh, at the time I'm going up how am I going to tell them that she's dead you know I mean this was the biggest thing for me was the problem of do I disclose this do I not say anything I, you know and I thought it's going to be guided just let it go the fact that five weeks later and when it went to court they were saying that this was a big thing was that there were no fingerprints on there but a partial thumbprint or something stupid that was not belonging to anybody well if they went back and they redid the window um, why were my fingerprints within a couple days while she's still missing and they hadn't even found her why were they not showing up anywhere which indicates to me how bad the forensic was and how mismanaged this case was and the fact that you know that what went against them so sad because they're that not only did they lose a child but their whole lives were destroyed I mean it, it, in my opinion your name of the shows is perfect because their lives were shattered and I'm sure their children's life been affected through all this too I mean there's no way you can keep something that's a complete secret you know what I mean it's it's things leak out come out and you uh, I just hope that the I know that the, the things that got back to me when I had talked to some of the people like you know when I, with the court and, and the judge and the lawyer uh, David's lawyer that unless they found the one earring that was missing and or they found the other piece of the rope because of David's case being turned over and And it was only based on circumstantial and that's why the courts found him innocent we're not able to do that again with the next person which would have been Tim Gus I think that this show will help again do part of it's part of the healing at least that people are still caring and I it, it's something that you just want to resolve you just want it to be ended for this family and you want it to be put her at rest as well and know that people down here still care about her and are still trying to come up with the answer because I feel it's important to her. A lot of the investigators on this case still believe that they had it right when Cynthia and David were charged with Jacqueline's murder. Whatever their belief, David cannot be tried again for the same crime due to the double jeopardy law. still technically an open case uh, in fact I was after I was after the murder about a year afterwards in fact it was after a little after Perry Hernandez arrest I went back to the state's attorneys I was a I was a police officer then I went to law school while being well a police officer in fact during this investigation I was in law school uh, got hired by the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. was there till maybe 98 
And then uh, I became chief of Blue Island, chief of police. And that was till 2003. And then in 2003, I went back to the state's attorney's office. Uh, I was in charge of uh, one of the bosses in gang prosecutions. And there was a lady in cold case that wanted to, they had a lot of questions about it. In fact, she says she was, she was uh, very big in DNA and she talked to me. She said, what do you think it would hurt to resend the, the bed sheet, the panties, the rope and whatever evidence we might've had that had any possible DNA. What do you think about getting and get rechecked? What do we got to lose? Nothing. They looked for all that. They had everything retested because uh, we figured, okay, it's now years afterwards. DNA gets better every single year, uh, and nothing new came up. Nothing usable. You know, I I don't know what condition the if it had degraded by then. I, I I don't know what the condition of it was. I let the lab handle all that, and I wasn't the lead person on it. I was just informed that nothing usable came. But it's it's DNA is amazing, and uh, you know if they ever send it in again, if if it is testable, you know what do you got to lose? We actually did a DNA mapping on the on the bedspread and the rope the second time, you know, because again this was more advanced, and they came up with nothing. Don't forget that it was out there for a while. It was degraded, uh, so I don't know if if that caused it or what. That body was pretty well decomposed. It was warm outside. It was right behind a garbage can. So what do you have around garbage can? Flies. There was there's uh, mice. There's raccoons. There's other things in that field between there and the canal. They were all nibbling. Uh, and once that opens up, uh, it just aids in the uh, decomposition. You know, unless they get lucky with uh, and somehow retest the DNA, or unless they. Uh, Unless someone comes forward and says, hey, I did it, but that was 32 years ago. But how do you prove it? I mean, I've had cases where we thought we're over and years later, somebody come up and says, hey, here's what happened. And we were able to charge them and prosecute them. But after 32 years, you know, there have been older ones done. So I, I never say never, but I just think it's very slight. For something like this to be re-grabbed, there have to be a reason, you know. Somebody comes forward, there's something comes forward, or there's a reason. Otherwise, you know, there's so many of them, unfortunately. DNA would be great. Eyewitness would be great. Uh, a confession would be great if you could verify the confession. Because nowadays there are some people that will confess anything. They have yet to receive an apology. According to Midlothian Police, the case is still open. When we spoke to Rob Warden about this, here is what he had to say. It's it's just a standard there, obviously. I don't I don't think they've done anything and they don't want to admit that they've done nothing. Uh, but it seems like um, you know, after uh, thirty years um, to claim that this investigation is still open is kind of absurd. The case against David and Cynthia was paper-thin from the onset. The state went to trial with very little else other than circumstantial evidence. They drummed home the question, if they didn't do it, then who did? 
However, that question is impossible to answer due to lack of physical evidence in the case. But not only that, it is insufficient foundation for a murder conviction. In a murder trial, the prosecution must prove that only the person on trial could have been the person to commit the murder. It goes without saying that the state failed miserably in showing that David or Cynthia were guilty of their daughter's murder. Moreover, the state had failed to provide any kind of motivation. They had speculated that Cynthia and David had tied Jacqueline to her bed as a form of discipline. However, they did not provide any insight as to where this theory had formulated from. There was no proof of any abuse in the household or any witnesses who suspected any mistreatment. In fact, all of the witnesses testified to quite the opposite. Cynthia and David were loving and caring parents who wouldn't even raise their voice to their children, let alone bind them to a bed. If there is no case against Cynthia, then there is no case against David. It's estimated that approximately 61% of child murders are committed by the child's parent or parents. When a child is murdered, the parents are often the very first suspects and are typically ruled out early on in the investigation. However, sometimes that cloud of suspicion that falls across the parents never really goes away, even if they are acquitted in a court of law or have their convictions overturned. Being falsely accused of your own child's murder is conceivably even more lamentable and traumatic than the true killer never being caught. And in a modern-day world, we like to imagine that police always get it right when it comes to catching a killer, especially the killer of a young child. However, sadly, they don't. According to Convicted But Innocent, Wrongful Conviction and Public Policy, about 10,000 people in the United States alone may be wrongfully convicted of serious crimes every single year. One of the leading causes in wrongful convictions are eyewitness mistakes. Eyewitness identification is fallible, but during a trial, it can come across as so convincing that when it's wrong, it can pose a serious risk of convicting somebody who is innocent. In fact, every single wrongful conviction in Missouri alone that was reversed by DNA evidence involved eyewitness misidentification. Uh, witnesses uh, uh, sometimes come forward and, and tell how they were coerced by police or prosecutors to lie or how they, 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 they lied to save their own skin. Um, we find, uh, in many cases, the actual perpetrator uh, of a crime has been located or identified by other witnesses or sometimes even just feeling guilty uh, coming forward and saying, hey, gee, I committed this crime for which these people have been uh, been convicted. Uh, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, if you analyze uh, these cases, and as I said, I've, I've analyzed hundreds, if not thousands, of, of criminal cases in which there have been convictions. And uh, in, in many of them, I mean, often I would receive a letter from somebody in prison and I'd, and I'd say to one of my assistants, hey, look, if what this person says in this letter is true, this is just a, 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 an egregious case. Uh, so then we check it out and we find out, yeah, it's true. Uh, but uh, there's almost nothing to be done because uh, the way... Uh, the way the system is structured, the only issue after you've been convicted uh, is whether or not you received a fair trial. 
And if if that's the issue, you have very if that's the only issue, you have very little chance of of, of prevailing. Uh, now after where after your, your appeals have been exhausted, your direct appeals have been exhausted, there are ways to bring attacks on a conviction. These are called collateral attacks or post-conviction attacks in which you can bring forth new evidence. The, the new evidence is, uh, is pretty hard to obtain. I mean, it, it, unless there's some physical evidence that, that can be tested or there are maybe new witnesses uh, who the police had failed to interview, who, who had covered up exculpatory evidence or something of that sort that we've been able to find and, and, and overturn cases uh, uh, based on that. Uh, but in essence, the system, although I, uh, if you, I'm sure if you did a poll of Americans, you'd find that 97% would tell you that, that the criminal justice system is, uh, uh, is fair and accurate and probably the best in the world. Uh, but in fact, uh, it's uh, highly inaccurate and it renders uh, many unjust verdicts and causes incredible amount of pain and suffering that's often attributable to police and prosecutorial misfeasance, if not malfeasance. So the fact is, you know, we often hear People say in the United States, oh, the criminal justice system is broken. I take issue with that. Using the word broken indicates that it once was not broken and that something occurred to break it. In fact, it has never worked. It is inherently dysfunctional and consequently uh, a, a sizable uh, number of people are convicted of crimes uh, they did not commit. Uh, it, it's kind of ironic, um, you know. When I was a young, when I was a young reporter, I uh, was covering uh, courts. And, uh, lawyers, defense lawyers, would often tell me, "Oh, I don't want to try the case in the press." Well, you know that was a pretty good policy because, by and large, the press had been a hostile environment. And that only began to change with, uh, well, with with cases like. Probably should I started working on, but but also then ultimately with the advent of DNA and particularly Gary Dotson, uh, which was another of uh, the cases that I was involved in uh, early on. That was the first DNA uh, exoneration in the world, actually. Post -con I mean, I think people had been exonerated, had been charged and exonerated, but nobody had ever been convicted and exonerated by the time that, that Gary Dotson was. But by and large, the media and particularly the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, uh, became really champions of, uh, of injustice. And this became, I mean, really uh, doing a great job. And we wouldn't have the innocence movement that we have today uh, had it not been for, a, uh, uh, for this revolution in, in uh, the media uh, attitude. And that was brought about by and large by DNA. And now that we've seen this, this cutback in investigative reporting, uh, that might, obviously the media are not going to play the important role that they once did. But now, uh, you know, in the United States, for instance, we have 60 um, uh, innocence projects, like the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern. 
and um, the, the Innocence Project that Cardoza founded at Cardoza Law School in New York, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, etc. There are 60 such projects, and they're going to keep uh, uh, churning out these cases. And so the future, you know, there's uh, and the media, no matter what form it takes, are going to be eager to report uh, these uh, wrongful convictions. So it's uh, you know it's kind of an interesting situation. But I did write a uh, I wrote a lot of the article once on the revolutionary role of the media in wrongful convictions, and we never would have had an innocence movement were it not for. Uh, a lot of courageous reporting and so we're lucky that we had a vibrant investigative media in those days because today it might not have happened uh, due to all the cutbacks. In the absence of DNA evidence, recantion can secure an exoneration. Here's what David Protest said about that. One way is that uh, that witnesses recanted in, in, in almost every case I've been involved with, including the Wallaby, a, a key witness has admitted that they, they lied. Everett Mann in the Wallaby case told us that he looked across a parking lot from 75 yards away in total darkness and saw a person who looked like David the Wallaby. Well, completely implausible, and he ultimately came to admit it. Um, also admitted that the police prompted him to pick out uh, David's picture. So, so I mean, that was the only difference that separated David's guilty verdict from Cynthia's acquittal by the trial judge is, is Everett Mann's testimony. Uh, so, so we didn't have DNA in the Dwalaby case, but the appellate court agreed that with Mann's um, recantation and admission that he had not seen David Dwalaby. Uh, that there was no longer a basis to find David guilty, and that's why they dismissed the, the case. Uh, so again, no DNA, but the man recantation. I, I get it why some people don't come forward. I don't judge them. I really understand. A better late than never. When this case became a wrongful conviction, it also became an unsolved murder. A little girl was taken from her bed and brutally killed. In the media frenzy surrounding her murder, Jacqueline was lost between sensationalism and the truth. The work done to uncover the truth was for Jacqueline, for this beautiful little girl who never got to be all the things she dreamed she would be. Jacqueline DeWallaby will never be forgotten. As human beings, we like to imagine that a child's bedroom is a safe haven from predators. And perhaps it was reassuring to people to believe that Jacqueline's own parents had killed her, regardless of the evidence against them, or lack thereof. Accepting the theory that it could have been a stranger rekindles the biggest fear of every single parent in the world. That somebody can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, without waking their parents or sibling, take them to a secluded location, and murder them. The harsh reality, however, is that children can be abducted from their bedroom by a stranger in the dead of night. Since the Jacqueline de Wallaby case, there have been numerous similar cases which prove that it is more than possible. To name just a few, Polly Klass, Elizabeth Smart, Jessica Lunsford, Kirsten Hatsfield, Donna Sue Davis, Jennifer Shewitt and Danielle Van Damme. 
I mean, these were very middle-class people in an ordinary middle-class suburb. And for a killer to descend on them, followed by the media and law enforcement, uh, was just beyond imagination. It was just so weird that somebody would break in while you're sleeping and take your child. What was happening to compound it was there were copycats going on here from this. People were breaking into houses and seeing if they could steal the kids out while the parents were sleeping. People were panicking in this country because they were afraid that it was going to become like a, 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 okay, now there's three cases that have made the news. Now, how many more are there going to be? Are they going to try to outdo? Is this going to be a new way to terrorize people to come in and take their kids? One can't even begin to imagine the nightmare that Cynthia and David were thrust into when they discovered that their daughter was missing. How horrifying for your child to die in such a violent manner and then to be suspected and charged with her murder. How nightmarish to have your surviving children then taken away from you and be suspected of physical and sexual abuse with not a shred of physical evidence. It wasn't just that that people didn't want to believe that a little girl could be taken from her bed in the middle of the night. That was bad enough. Uh, People equally didn't want to believe that, that parents could be wrongfully charged with the crime. When Cynthia and David used their right as an American citizen to plead the fifth, they were placed in the firing line of an investigation and the media, which was more than shameful. In the aftermath, many media outlets came forward to confess that they had automatically assumed the couple were guilty because of police sources whispering in their ear and exaggerating what evidence they had against them. Because of the damaging media portrayal against the couple, their chances of a fair trial were thwarted. A collection of people came together to support the Dwallowies after Jacqueline's murder. Their friends and neighbours formed a freedom committee that was pivotal in changing the public perception of the case. David and Cynthia's best friend Peggy O'Connor dedicated her time to not only helping getting David out of prison, but helping them get back on their feet after he was freed. It is not only a testament to David and Cynthia's character, but to the memory of Jacqueline that so many lives were touched by her loss. Bob Byman was incredibly selfless and put hundreds of hours of work into writing an amazing appellate argument that ensured that David could be a free man again. He said that he didn't need payment because his son's pride in him after David was released was priceless. Bob spoke about his relationship with the family since. We still exchange Christmas cards and I got invited to Carly's wedding. Uh, Unfortunately, we couldn't go. We were out of the country then, but... uh, And I got a very nice note from Carly, who I hadn't actually spoken to since she was three years old. Uh, But she basically said, thank you for letting my father walk down the aisle with me. In the wake of David's release, Cynthia and David changed their names and eventually moved from Midlothian, knowing that they would be recognised and hounded forever. In a bid to pay their legal fees, they had to sell everything they owned, including two homes, and had to remortgage all of their furniture. The ordeal left them bankrupt. They remain a close-knit family who have tried their hardest to move forward in their lives. They were never afforded the chance to heal and recover when Jacqueline died. They deserve peace. They don't owe anyone answers. They are the ones who have lost so much. It has been 32 years since seven-year-old Jacqueline Dwallaby went missing from her bedroom in the middle of the night. Over three decades since the nightmare began in Midlothian fracturing the security of the suburban neighbourhood, 
breaking the trust many had in the justice system and destroying the lives of a normal family. Just like a shattered window, some things can never be repaired. The nightmare didn't end when Jacqueline's body was discovered dumped among the weeds in a Blue Island car park. It didn't end when Cynthia and David were charged with their daughter's murder and put on trial. It didn't end when they were acquitted and exonerated of any involvement. The nightmare still lives on and will continue until the lingering mystery is solved. The question still remains, who killed Jacqueline de Wallaby? Thank you so much for listening to The Shattered Window. We'll be continuing to look for the truth about Jacqueline's murder and encourage anyone who knows anything to come forward. Jacqueline's family deserve peace. We will be back with another season of The Shattered Window, so keep an eye on our social media channels for updates. Special thank you to all of the people who supported us on Patreon. We will continue to post content over there in the coming weeks about the case. Once again, thank you and take care.